Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. Today, we explore the complexities of immigration and race in contemporary Japan, where Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has just recently announced that he will be stepping down after a long tenure in the Prime Minister's office. We're fortunate to have with us today Michael Sharp, a professor of political science at York College of CUNY. Michael Orlando Sharp is associate professor of political science at York College, as well as an adjunct research scholar at Columbia University's Weatherhead East Asian Institute. His research looks comparatively at the politics of migration, immigrant political incorporation, and political transnationalism in the Netherlands, Japan, and around the world. His first book, Postcolonial Citizens and Ethnic Migration, The Netherlands and Japan in the Age of Globalization, offers a cross-regional investigation of the role of citizenship and ethnicity in migration, exploring more specifically the political realities faced by Dutch Antillians in the Netherlands and Latin American Nikkeijin, that is, people of uh, Japanese descent in Latin America, especially in Brazil, uh, when they go back to Japan or go to Japan. Professor Sharp has been a Mansfield Foundation and Japan Foundation Center for Global Partnership U.S.-Japan Network for the Future Program Scholar. He's a member of the Association of Asian Studies, Northeast Asia Council, Distinguished Speakers Bureau. Thanks so much for being with us today, Michael Sharp. Thank you very much. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to, to be here. Great. Great to have you with us. So uh, when you and I first met, you told me an interesting story uh, about your background, and I thought it might be uh, useful to start there um, because I think it probably had a lot to do with shaping how you came to study Japanese politics and the Netherlands, uh, and more specifically to focus on immigration and discrimination in Japan. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it shaped your scholarly work? Sure. So, so this is, so this is a bit of a, of a long story, but I'm going to try to shorten it. So I, I'm the first born in the United States to immigrant parents, from the Dutch Caribbean island of Aruba and the, and the Dominican Republic. Now, Aruba is still formerly a part of the Dutch kingdom. So that means I'm a, I'm a dual citizen of the U.S. and the Netherlands. And so my immediate and extended family have been immigrants over generations in various parts of the Caribbean and, and in Europe, including the Netherlands. So these multiple identities and legal citizenships They've always intrigued me with questions of, of, the, of the politics and, and determinants of membership and belonging, um, as well as inclusion and, and exclusion. So um, while I was a student at Columbia, a master's student at Columbia, I discovered that I had to move to the, to, to the Dutch kingdom, including the, the islands or, or the European Union, and, um, uh, in order to, to, to continue my, my Dutch citizenship. So I left... Colombia and continued and moved to, to the Netherlands. And I happened to be there um, in the 90s 
during the time of, of mass migration from the islands to the to the Netherlands, and I became very fascinated with the dilemmas of language and culture and and discrimination uh, impacting the the Antillean uh, community, and in the self-described multicultural, super tolerant uh, Netherlands. And so while there, I was uh, while doing research um, in the graduate school there, I came across an, an NGO called Imardar. Um, international movement against all forms of discrimination and racism, and Imardar is the brainchild of the Baraku Liberation League, which is a a minority uh, of of related to caste uh, discrimination in, in Japan. So, um, so I came across these these references, and uh, and I was moved to learn about the Baraku um, uh, people and, and the multi generational systematic discrimination that they face. So here's a personal story. My fellow graduate student and, and future wife was actually is actually from Japan, and and so we decided to get married and and thought it best that I get to know Japan. So I followed Miho from the Netherlands and emigrated to Japan, got married, obtained a spousal visa, and started taking a Japanese course. And it's and it's during this time that I um I experienced um the mass migration of Latin American Nikkeijin. These are Japanese descendants from Latin America moving to Japan. And I was very intrigued by this. I speak Spanish as well. Many of them spoke Portuguese because they're from Brazil. But And so I became intrigued with this and also the, the barriers that they faced to their own um, uh, inclusion, despite the fact that they uh, were uh, of the same blood. So, um, so while in Japan, I was very fortunate to... Um, to um, to get very good employment, and including, I ended up working for Imadar as a project coordinator for the Asia campaign of the 2001 World Conference on Racism in South Africa. So I was so I I, I was uh, very fortunate to do that, and this these experiences uh, uh, shaped my my interest in in in, in Dutch and Japanese politics. Um, so my own family background, immigrant experience in Japan, and work in anti-racism and social justice, and later I was employed with the Japanese consulate, consulate in New York. This made me fascinated with Japanese politics and the prospect of Japan as a new or latecomer country of immigration. Well, it's quite a story, and it reminds me, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the political scientist Ken Jowett once described North Korea uh, you know, playing on Stalin's notion of socialism in one country. He said it was socialism in one family in North Korea. <laughs> uh, and your yes. story is sort of globalization in one family. Yes. yes uh, you've got it all. You've got it all happening right, <laughs> right there at home. So that's a terrific uh, story. Thank you very much for, you know, explaining that for our listeners. Um but of course, you know, it gets into a lot of very serious issues, of course, about uh, what happens in Japan and Japan's orientation to foreigners and to immigration. And that really has been the focus of your work, as you kind of hinted. So let's talk about that. Um, Japan officially bans unskilled foreign labor and says it's not a country of immigration just as Germany did until you know, relatively recently, a couple of decades ago. It just was a fiction in Germany, uh, but one that they pretended was real and took pretty seriously until they decided it was kind of untenable to say. 
Japan has the world's longest life expectancy, but it faces demographic decline and labor shortages, shortages as a result of an aging population, low birth rates, uh, which threaten fundamentally the collapse of the pension system. Uh, and in recent years, they've begun to allow you know, significant numbers of foreign nationals into the country, uh, including uh, Prime Minister Abe's uh, creation of a new visa to allow half a million low-skilled foreign workers into Japan through 2025, all the while insisting that it wasn't an immigration policy. So w- w- what's the, what's going on with the Japanese government? Um, you know, what is their stance really about this? I mean, I've spoken to a, a scholar now, but a former member of the Japanese, uh, I guess it was foreign ministry, who said, look, we're going to have to abandon this fiction because we're just uh, our social welfare system is simply not going to survive unless we start to admit more foreigners. So how do you understand this? What's going on? Well, it's funny and it's a little ironic because actually you see mi- migrants actually very visible, at least uh, in, the, in the Tokyo a- area. They're visible as, as, um, as servers in, in restaurants, um, of, of Narita and, and Haneda airports, you know, the, the large airports uh, in Tokyo, the, as as clerks in in convenience stores. Almost every clerk in a in a, in a convenience store is a foreigner, um, very often of of, of Chinese origin. Uh, you'll see them in family restaurants, on farms, um, harvesting vegetables sold in in, in Tokyo's supermarkets, in food processing plants, um, also as semi-documented. Workers at at, at uh, construction sites, as well as in the um, in the as high skilled foreign workers in the IT finance and also the education sector. In popular culture, uh, you see foreigners um, as sumo wrestlers. Right, you, you think of of um, Akebono um, from Hawaii or from Mongolia. Uh, sumo wrestlers from Egypt to J-pop uh, to Enka traditional Enka music to uh, TV personalities, the fashion industry to most recently the crowning of a biracial Miss Universe and Miss Japan. So, so, um, so the reality um, is not consistent with, with actual the, the policy. So the, the, the rationale for the new visa is to support the, the labor shortage in, in several t- targeted areas, such as, such as agriculture and construction. And there's also a trainee program to allow foreigners from developing or less developed countries to to repatriate the skills that you learn in Japan, that's the that's the premise. But in fact, many of these workers are are exploited, and there have been violations of human rights. So there are important political, ideological, and practical reasons for Prime Minister Abe's statement on non-immigration. First, many of Prime Minister Abe's supporters are right-wing and ultra-nationalists, and so he cannot be openly supportive of immigration. Secondly. There is a persistent notion of the of the uniqueness of Japan as a homogenous society, and so and some think increased diversity through acceptance of more foreign workers will disrupt disrupt this society and lead to friction and crime and threats to public security that they imagine occur in Europe and elsewhere where there are sizable immigrant communities. Third, um, others question the capacity of foreigners to learn the Japanese language and culture. And integrate into its society, and, um, and and so foreigners have been asked to stay for a limited period of time. So the government argues uh, this will not 
be an outright immigration policy. Um, the, the new visa category does not allow uh, workers to bring their families, but, uh, uh, but others contend that one can change status to a skilled labor category, providing they f- uh, fulfill certain criteria, and that would allow them to bring their families and renew the, the, the visa. So the significance um, of this of this um, of this new policy, which is quite dramatic, is it really is another step to Japan um, o- opening to immigration, right? Where foreign workers are necessary for the maintenance and growth of the economy in this rapidly aging society, with with as you said, one of the world's lowest birth rates. Birth rates. So um, so the new visa targets uh, specific industries. Um, uh, where there are labor shortages, as Japan's baby boomers retire, there will not be enough young people to support the social welfare system, which heightens concerns about labor, about tax revenue, about health care, uh, pension systems, and long-term pr- productivity. Uh, the UN claims that Japan will need uh, 17 million foreign- foreigners by 2050 to address uh, worker scarcity and avoid a possible collapse of the of the pension system. So, so this is a possible, this is a way to piecemeal remedy that. And something else I'd also like to say, uh, many of Japan's uh, measures for foreign workers have been incremental and piecemeal. Uh, by the 1980s, the, the demand for cheap foreign labor was supplied by South Asians and, and Iranians. And, and this triggered side doors for unskilled foreign labor. One measure that was created was the 1990 reform that established a visa for overseas uh, Japanese descendants on the premise that they're coming to see their ethnic homeland. But but really, it's um, it was a way to attract um, you know unskilled foreign labor that might be possibly be more acceptable uh, to to the Japanese, which they found out. That these um, Latin American Nikkei gene were were Latin Americans, <laughs> and so uh, in the wake of the 2008 financial uh, world financial crisis, they actually created a program to send back to pay uh, Latin American Nikkei gene specifically to go back to Latin America under promise that they don't re- return uh, under the same visa status. Uh, during the 90s, also a, a, a trainee program was was created for for um, uh, to, to attract foreign workers from developing countries. By 2012, there's a point-based immigration system launched uh, with fast-track permanent residency after just one year of residence to attract high-skilled foreigners, and a new foreign registration system was established, extending the maximum stay for foreign residents from three to five years, and the trainee system was, was expanded. So, so we're seeing um, this policy is significant, but it is it's in line with other kind of piecemeal and incremental Japanese m- measures to increase um, uh, unskilled labor and, and, and stave off um, the collapse of the pension system and, of course, and feed the labor shortages. Fascinating. Um, and I, I have to say this raises issues that I've wondered about a lot um, about, you know, the way the term race is used and how it should be understood in many, you know, different parts of the world. Um, 
and your work is you know really right on the on target as far as kind of being able to say something comparative about how race is dealt with thought about in you know what we call the west and what we used to call the east um and so I wonder, I mean, I, this reminds me also of a comment I saw, I can no longer remember who it was, but writing about Chinese society and saying, this was somebody who you know, had lived in China for a long time, spoke Chinese, uh, et cetera, but who said, you know, uh, unless you look a certain way, you will never be Chinese. Right, <laughs> okay. Chinese. So, so I wonder if you could say a little bit about, you know, how might how does this differ in the you know in the Netherlands and Japan how how sure. is this concept you know employed used thought about uh, I'd be very interested to hear what you have to say about that okay well I, I yeah I can say quite a bit about that mm -hmm. um, so um, so the Japanese story is one is really one of of race and 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 modernity as a non-white power, right? As the first, as the world's first really um, non-white power that defeated the, the Russians, right? right? And, and with that, it actually, um, um, African-Americans are actually uh, very much inspired by, by that, by people like, like Du Bois and Garvey, um, and, and also Japanese intellectuals also were inspired by, by African-Americans. So let me start with this. So, so we know that, um, with the Meiji Restoration in the late uh, 19th century, right? Um, Japan, the Meiji reformers, they came to embrace this I idea of, of ethnic homogeneity. But Japan has always had uh, uh, indigenous Ainu people, right? They're, they're, those are the indigenous people of, J of Japan, Okinawans, and also the, the, the Barakumin uh, minority that, that I, I mentioned before. And they trace their origin to well before the 17th century, early Edo era. So like Germany, Japan is a late developer, right? Meaning it forms this modern state um, with, with this late uh, 19th century Meiji restoration from a rather disparate populace. And so they promote a, a common ethnicity as a, kind of, of, as, a, as a kind of a national glue, right? And you can say that they learned this from Otto van Bismarck and his notion of blood and iron about an ethnic uh, conception of, of nationhood. So with the promotion of the Japanese empire, though, there was expansion via colonialism into Asia, and the Japanese actually used racism um, and ethnic hier hierarchy. And, it's, and so this was actually a multi-ethnic empire where Asian peoples were regarded as, as racially inferior and backwards. So, um, and this, the Zainichi Korean and the Chinese minorities in Japan, they traced their origin to, to, to this period where they were used as essentially um, slave labor. So with Japan's defeat and the end of empire, there's a kind of unmixing of, of Japan and a re-embrace of ethnic homogeneity uh, with this, the, the um, 1954 San Francisco Peace Treaty right, where uh, colonial subjects lost the Japanese nationality. The U.S. Um, occupying forces also were very concerned about the Korean and Chinese minorities being communist um, instigators. So, uh, so, the, so very tight immigration controls were, were implemented, and this idea of ethnic homogeneity was um, 
was uh, promoted. So, so back to the race thing. Um, so again, Japan as a non-Western power, right? Um, it saw itself as actually a champion of the darker races, right? In fact, uh, Du Bois and Garvey actually use this language. The politician um, uh, uh, Makino actually used Jim Crow and lynching as a wedge issue to embarrass the United States. Um, and the, uh, Japan actually proposed a racial equality bill at the 1919 Paris uh, Peace Conference. So in contemporary Japan, race is often thought, thought of as a black-white issue, right? So, uh, so um, and an issue that doesn't apply to, to, to the Japanese, right? That's a black-white thing. So racism in Japan has a similar function as colorblind racism, uh, the kind of racism you might see in the Netherlands, right? In the Netherlands, there's a stress on, well, you're, you're formally equal and there is no, um, you're formally equal, so there is no racism. But of course, there's racism and the denial of racism actually reinforces it. So you see this very much in the Netherlands. I, I give an example. You've heard of the Swati Piet. Uh, black Pete, right? Where white white folks and black folks actually dress up in very in in minstrel like fashion in blackface, right? It's part of the Dutch um, Christmas uh, tra- tradition, and this is very offensive to to black people. And uh, but the, but Dutch people will say, well, white Dutch people will say, well, there's nothing racist about it. It's simply our our tradition, and this is. Um, this is uh, Santa's helper. He goes down the chimney and he becomes dark. But when you look at it, it's very much an exaggerated caricature of blackness with large earrings and large big lips and, you know, and, and Afro wig. And it's, it is quite disturbing. But, but so the two places are actually similar when it comes to this denial of racism and the reinforcement of it. In Japan... Uh, the Netherlands will say, well, we're so equal, we're so tolerant, we suffered under the, Na- the Nazis, there's no way that we can be racist, look at us. Right? And in, and in, in Japan, uh, there's something kind of similar, but the other way around. They will say, well, we're, um, race, race is viewed as something foreign, and, um, and so there is no racism, right? Uh, because, because of this notion of, of, of uh, of being ethnically homogenous. Um, even in the Japanese constitution, which was written by the, you know, by the Americans for the most part, um, there actually is a, a clause in, in there to talk about, about racism, right? But the thing is, by using the word racism, they also forget about, about the ethnic minorities, uh, like the Koreans and Chinese who, who actually face quite a bit of racism. As far as now, I'd like to talk a little bit about visible foreigners, though, because there's a distinction between Asian foreigners, right, um, from, or from also from East Asia, and visible foreigners. So r- racism against visible foreigners in Japan, um, very much in contemporary Japan, often takes the form of country of origin and level of development. So we know in ancient Japanese art, there's a, there's a preference for pale skin. Right, as darker skin is probably associated with field labor. So the more recent doctrine of white supremacy converges with this, and by virtue of Japanese colonialism and development, 
Uh, you see this in later pop culture and influence and things in skin lightening and whitening all over um, East Asia. Um, and so what you see, for, for these reasons, some argue that white Americans and white Europeans are at the top of the food chain of visible foreigners um, in Japan with Africans and South Asians towards the bottom. Um, there is a fascination with African-Americans culture, right? And, um, and especially pop culture. So um, for, a writer, for a variety of reasons, some African-Americans in Japan may actually feel freer and more empowered than they do in the, in the United States. But, and so that, this, this preference for African-Americans means that Africans are kind of, um, you know, regarded as, a, as lower on the food chain. And what you'll see in some neighborhoods, which, is, which I found quite fascinating, um, in some neighborhoods, uh, popular, you know, trendy neighborhoods, you'll see Africans uh, do caricatures of like hip-hop African-Americans because the Japanese, they can't distinguish so, so it's uh, it's very very. But you and I would be able to distinguish because of their um, of their their accents. I've also heard quite a bit about South Asians and Africans and other Black and Brown people being stopped and harassed by police, denied housing, relegated to certain types of employment, and also exploited. And um, in 2017, the government released the results of its first national survey on racial, racial and ethnic discrimination reports that include employment discrimination, racist taunts. There's a lot of racism when it comes to housing, uh, discriminatory speech, right, um, etc. Um, but Maybe. I'll just, oh, but yeah, please go ahead. Well, I don't want to interrupt your train of thought, but it sounds like, you know, in a certain sense, some of your comments are bringing us to the contemporary scene. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, like many countries, I think the Japanese are fascinated with uh, the United States. And it sounds like they were moving, have been moving to some extent towards their own, uh, you know, sort of reckoning with race, if that's the yes. Yes, I think so. Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how, you know, Japanese society and Japanese government are responding to what's been happening in the United States since the killing of George Floyd. Sure, sure. I can definitely talk about that. I, I, but I'll, I'll, before that, I would like to also say that you know, racial hierarchy can be relational and um, and based on context, right? So when I moved to Japan, I got I was able to receive uh, gain employment, very good employment, where my wife uh, was not actually, right? Because quite a bit of gender uh, discrimination as well. On the other hand. Um, even if you live in Japan for decades and speak the language fluently, you may actually be offered forks instead of chopsticks uh, in restaurants and treated like like permanent guests. Um, but uh, on the other hand, um, you have many biracial um, athletes and stars, Naomi Osaka, the sp sprinter um, Asuka Cambridge, uh, and others, and and the crownings of of a Miss Universe and Miss Miss Japan biracial. Miss Universe and Miss Japan. This does say something about the changing self-perception of Japan. So, just going to the to the George, uh, sorry, yes, to uh, the Black Black Lives Matter um, movement, which has been quite interesting. So, there was an incident in Japan recently around the Black Lives Matter, 
um, uh, movement, NHK, which is a national broadcaster, uh, they actually they put out a kind of uh, uh, a kind of cartoon, right, trying to explain uh, Black Lives Matter. And the, the video was decried internationally and domestically for its stereotypical and racist depiction of African Americans, right? Um, and um, and so, so this video actually speaks to, again to the denial and consequential reinforcement of racism in Japanese society. The Japanese may they may argue naivete, uh, but naivete is an argument often made by some in Japan and European countries to disavow black, anti-black racism with the claim that there had never been slaves on the territory or, or there's never been a significant black population. But of course, um, uh, there have been Africans in Japan since the 16th century. Um, the U.S., um, when Commodore Perry came to Japan to open up Japan, he actually brought the minstrel show with him. And um, right with, with whites performing in blackface, with the demeaning caricatures of blacks, um, right, to justify their subordination, right? So similarly, uh, the NHK video portrayed um, African-Americans in a kind of stereotypical caricatures, right, looting um, and uh, uh, with a, a man in a sleeveless purple suit and fedora playing guitar in sandals and an overly, a single overly muscular African-American narrator in a tank top speaking in very crude Japanese about the impact of inequality and the, and the coronavirus as a source of the protests, instead of talking about the, the killing, the systematic killing of black people uh, by police and, 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 and racism in, in the U.S. So the video failed to address the issues that Black Lives Matter have, have, have brought to bear. The U.S. Embassy actually condemned the video uh, NHK apologized and now says it's um, it's retraining its staff, but this may also have something to do with what's going on in Japan with police brutality against some foreigners in Japan. Just a few days before that, a Kurdish man had been um, uh, had a, had an incident with with the police that people regard as as discrimination. So some argued that maybe NHK was trying to avoid that issue. <laughs> all right, all, all together. All right. Uh, but what you'll see in Japan is sometimes you will see uh, actually performers put on blackface. Um, I know it's the 21st century, but still, you, there was an incident a few years ago of the comic Hamada who appeared in blackface to impersonate Eddie Murphy and the movie Be Beverly Hills um, uh, Cop. Uh, and, and while there might be criticism of this, um, and, and other incidents of racial insensitivity, um, the, the, the Japanese defense is often, is often uh, naivete or, or an attempt to, to, to pay homage. Uh, so, um, and sometimes even Caucasians are impersonated uh, by, by, with, with Japanese wearing blonde wigs and long plastic noses. And there were ads used on, the, um, on ANA, the Japanese airline, or and, and Toshiba, um, and using this, and they had to pull these ads and, and, uh, and apologize. So there is, there is certainly racism in, in the Japanese media, right? So 
And so this, this denial of racism, I think what we can say is that white, white supremacy and systematic racism has to be addressed in every part of the world, uh, including Japan. Indeed. Um, and, you know, the protests that the killing of George Floyd uh, sparked, initiated, uh, has been followed up by people around the world. Uh, yes. Certainly in Europe. Uh, and I wonder, you know, aside from what happened at the NHK, the broadcaster, uh, what's been going on among the Japanese population? Have there been protests in the street about any of these issues? Absolutely, it's it's, it's actually very, very encouraging. There have been there have, there have been uh, there there is a Black Lives Matter uh, movement also in um, in uh, in Japan. So uh, there have been demonstrations in the big, like uh, there's a place called Shibuya, which is kind of the Times Square of Tokyo, in 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 uh, in, uh, in Shibuya. There have been demonstrations also in Osaka, you know, where there's a large Korean uh, minority discriminated, and so um, no, this has def- definitely been been raised, particularly particularly by young people, and I I, I think it's very very encouraging. Um, uh, so it's being well well in, uh, attended by young people in Tokyo and Osaka in solidarity with those in the U.S. and internationally, but also raising the issues of racism and discrimination in Japan. So that's, I think there's a lot of potential there for, for change. And we started out by mentioning that uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has just announced that he's going to step down from his office after eight years uh, his second, actually, his second period as uh, prime minister, uh, and he's now the longest-serving post post-war uh, prime minister. Uh, so what do you foresee uh, coming down the road for immigration and race issues with a, a new government coming in? Well, okay, uh, with the new government, well, as you said, you know, Prime Minister Abe was the longest-serving prime minister uh, in Japanese history. So he carries a great deal of political weight and influence through his 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 continuity, um, but I don't think much will change uh, with, with, with by him uh, resigning. J- Japan's uh, Liberal Democratic Party, um, one of the world's longest uh, ruling parties, right? It has dominated uh, since, with, with with very little exception, have it has dominated Japan for, for most of its uh, post-war uh, development. The major in, inter-party factions uh, within the LDP have agreed to rally for another for for Suga, who's another person, and and hoping that Suga um, will become prime minister. Uh, he actually served as Abe's cabinet secretary uh, for many years, and there and so his supporters uh, they hope that 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 he will give them ministerial positions uh, in return for for their support. As, we, as with regard to immigration policy, I don't think there'll be much of a difference. Suga has 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 a ruthlessly, if if you don't mind me saying, pragmatic approach to politics, combined with with very ideologically conservative uh, inclinations, and that's been evident in his loyalty to Abe. And this suggests that immigration policy will follow ar- along the the lines of Abe's. Um, with and that is with no interest in a, in an integration policy, um, but he will he will be keen to answer to the demands of of employers 
who need um, you know labor. So uh, so there won't be much of a hesitation to 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 continue the new visa policy. As far uh, as racism, um, probably I think there's a growing consciousness in in Japanese society. Um, you know, uh, to fight despite the fact that there's there's little to really to address or educate the public about about racism. More, since 2006, there have been these anti-Korean, anti and anti-Chinese protests um, in in Japan's big cities, led by right-wing uh, extremist groups, uh, calling Koreans criminals and cockroaches, and even calling for their killing. And so. The diet, the Japanese diet, their parliament passed um, anti-hate speech legislation in 2016, but the law has no penalties, and so many see it as as ineffectual. Um, and uh, but this, uh, there is an organization called Zaito Zaito Kukai, and it's been which is the, this right-wing group. Uh, they've been identified by the National Police Agency as a hate speech um, organization. And places like Osaka have passed ordinances to against hate hate speech. So, um, so there is some education, but very little, mostly around Baraku issues uh, in the Japanese school system. There is something called moral education, which some have argued has really been used as a muse for patriotic kind of nationalist uh, impulse. So I think as far as immigration policy, I, I don't think much will change. Um, as far as integration policy, I don't think much will change in that direction. The recognition, though, of racism is growing. And, and, e- and even though you have, you have this, these anti-Korean, anti-Chinese hate groups, on the other side, you also have a growing anti-racist movement uh, in Japan as well that's being staffed by, by young people and actually, and from old timers, from from the from the new left of the of the nineteen sixties and seventies. Interesting. Um, you know, it occurs to me from uh, thinking about some of the comments you've made uh, to ask you to compare this to the situation in Europe. That is, um, on the one hand, you have kind of increasingly nationalist, sometimes called populist movements. Yes that um, are, you know, about uh, saying, you know, our country for people like us, whichever country that might be. Uh, But at the same time, you know, the European, the social democratic European welfare state um, faces some of the same kinds of problems that Japan faces in terms of life expectancy and labor shortages and uh, so there's a push kind of in a different direction from what I've just described that kind of says, well, whether we like it or not, we have to sort of have more of these people who are not like us uh, if we're if our welfare state is going to survive. Uh, I'm sort of reminded of something this big new Brzezinski said in one of his last books about Europe being the world's largest, um, the, the world's most comfortable nursing home. <laughs> Yeah, or that that was its kind of greatest aspiration. He was being kind of critical, but but the remark stuck with me. Uh, So I wonder if you could talk about you know how these two parts of the world uh, are thinking about these issues. I mean, 
you know, to some degree they're thinking about them, to some degree they're just reacting to them, I suppose. But, um, you know, I wonder, are there different approaches? Do you see different kinds of consequences? Is Japan going to be more resistant than Europeans have been seemingly of late um, to opening up to, you know, non-Japanese others? Uh, Be interested in your comments on that. Well, it's it's interesting because you know on on the local level the the uh, the, integra- the the integration is happening already um, uh, in in Japan and people are are you know related to your comments on the um, on the kind of um, uh, nursing home um, idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a huge um, because it is the world's oldest population. There's a huge industry around um, caregiving uh, in Japan. That's being staffed by by um, you know by by foreigners you know for for the most part, and I've read some studies that say that actually caregivers are seen in a different light than other types of foreign workers just simply by virtue of the kind of work the, the intimacy you know of, of that kind of of that kind of work. So I so uh, I don't know if you get that that same sort of outcome in 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 Europe. Um. As far as um, so, so, and also, I th- I think that I mean for Japan, this is really a, a matter of, of life and death, right? Um, it seems that what what is going on in the politicians' minds is different from what's going on in in civil society. In the politicians' minds, there seems to be a real uh, um, fear. Right and avoidance of this issue of of immigration because they think they they think that that there will be a negative backlash that that might not necessarily be true, um, and so there's an avoidance of it and instead of, instead of of attacking it head on, you you get these piecemeal measures, right that that, that have that started in the '90s and, and continue, but in my view this is this is inevitable and I do think that. Um, that Japan, it's re- it's a country that's reinvented itself uh, many times over. So, so we're several times uh, all over, and this immigration regime, whether or, or, uh, they like it or not, um, it is expanding, right? Uh, while simultaneously denying that it's a, a country of of immigration, I, Japan is also a very organized, very incredibly orderly um, society, and I think that the way the way in which immigration is framed and managed could actually, it could go in two directions. It could be a model of, of acceptance uh, and democratic inclusion, right? Um, or an exemplar of illiberal intolerance um, and exclusion for the region and the, and the world. So I really see this as a litmus test of its, of its liberal democracy. I know I, and, and in Europe, I see, the, I see it as, as well. But the difference in Japan, though, that I think there there are legal mechanisms that are missing in Japan that you have in Europe that you know to combat um, r- racism and discrimination. Also, the phenomena in Europe, um, at least I can I can speak for the Netherlands, it really it's really framed around anti-Muslims. It's anti-Muslim, anti-Islamic, and that and that's that is something and the. The changing of the culture by virtue of uh, the expansion of, of the Muslim population, right, vis-a-vis the, the white Dutch pop, popu- population, that's a phenomenon that, that we don't see in, in Japan. 
Fascinating. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. That's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Professor Michael Sharp of CUNY's York College for taking the time to discuss the issue of immigration and race in, in Japan today. I also want to thank Christo Voinov for his technical assistance. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us again for the next episode of International Horizons. Thank you very much.